Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, we'll be discussing the controversial Judge Rotenberg Center in Canton, Massachusetts. I have so much to say, so let's get right to it. According to its own website, Judge Rotenberg Educational Center is a day and residential school located in Canton, Massachusetts, licensed to serve children as young as five all the way through adulthood. JRC boasts that it has provided very effective education and treatment to both emotionally disturbed students with conduct, behavior, emotional, and or psychiatric problems, as well as those with intellectual disabilities or on the autism spectrum since 1971. Three main special features of treatment are featured again on their own website. Their specialized education programs offer a near zero rejection policy, not rejecting or expelling students due to the severity of their behavior. According to JRC, the treatment plans are ABA based and directed by clinicians with doctoral and master's level training in behavioral psychology. An attempt, in their words, whenever it is professionally appropriate to do so, to minimize or eliminate the use of antipsychotic medication. A deeper dive into the website and you'll find their quote, unique, consistent, and powerful treatment program claims to improve behaviors through unique reward systems, boasting rewards from everything from a visit to the big reward store to one-on-one field trips. But you'll find absolutely zero mention of the one thing that sets them apart from every other institution for those with intellectual disabilities in the United States. The one thing in their treatment program that a 2013 United Nations report deemed a violation of the UN Convention Against Torture. I'm going to say that again, this time a little louder for those in the back. A so-called treatment at the Judge Rotenberg Center, who treats both children and adults with autism and intellectual disabilities, as well as psychiatric and behavioral issues, tortures its patients. And that's not my opinion. That's a fact according to that 2013 United Nation report. And exactly what is this treatment the UN and countless others, including the FDA, has deemed as torture and a violation of civil rights? The Graduated Electronic Decelerator, or GED for short. What is a GED and what does it do? Well, let me tell you. The graduated electronic decelerator is a device that delivers skin shocks through a system of electrodes placed on various body parts of the person receiving the so-called treatment. And let's not get it twisted. It's a completely separate thing from electroconvulsive therapy, which according to the Mayo Clinic is a procedure done under general anesthesia in which small electric currents are passed through the brain intentionally triggering a brief seizure. And that's a whole different story for a whole nother day. But patients receiving electroconvulsive therapy are out, receiving anesthesia so they don't feel the shock. Residents of Judge Rotenberg Center aren't. In fact, the GED was designed to inflict pain. That is its purpose. Picture this. Electrodes strapped with Velcro to a patient's arms, legs, and or torso with a system of wires running under their clothing, hooking to a 10-pound backpack with 12-volt batteries they are forced to wear, all while staff members carry around remote control boxes with the student's photo on them, the photo to ensure a shock isn't delivered to the wrong student, because that's apparently happened a lot before. 
When a student or resident displays behavior that goes against the rules set with them in their behavior contract, a staff member pulls out that box, presses a button, and delivers a two-second shock. According to Medical Device Network, the original GED delivers a 15 to 30 milliamp shock. And that's just the original. What is also currently being used is the GED-4, which was literally designed to inflict even more pain because the original wasn't strong enough. The GED-4 is three times more powerful than the one that came before. According to NSAadvocate.org, the GED-4 gives an average shock of 45.5 milliamps. And let's just put that in perspective. By comparison, most police tasers deliver shocks of 2.1 or 3.6 milliamps. And let me just say, most tasers are on the lower end of that spectrum. I reached out to multiple officers in differing states and asked, and I found the most common to be somewhere around 2 milliamps. I spoke with a 35-year veteran of the force who works in a very high crime area. 21 of his 35 years, he carried a taser. In 21 years, he deployed his taser three times. Three times. And there were rules in his department. You were only allowed to tase someone three times before alternate measures were to be taken, more than likely some type of hold until the subject could be subdued and under control. He stated that simply pulling out the taser was generally enough to stop a subject in his or her tracks. Simply the threat of the shock was generally enough. And having been tased himself, he recalled it being extremely painful and incapacitating. And remember, we're talking two milliamps. The GED used at Judge Rotenberg Center is capable of up to 45.5. According to Matthew Israel, founder of the Judge Rotenberg Center and inventor of the GED, the device has no side effects. He likes to say this very frequently and with conviction. But according to OSHA.gov, you know, the safety people, at 6 to 25 milliamps for women and 9 to 30 milliamps for men, painful and disturbing shocks, loss of muscle control, and strong involuntary and I stress involuntary, reactions that can lead to other injuries are suffered. And back to the taser. The warning label on a taser with a 2 milliamp capability reads, can temporarily incapacitate target, can cause death or serious injury, obey warnings, instructions, and all laws, comply with current training materials and requirements. It's the can cause death or serious injury for me. And while Matthew Israel claims there are no side effects to his GED, OSHA disagrees, stating that at a minimum, electric shock can cause headaches, muscle fatigue or spasms, temporary unconsciousness, and temporary breathing difficulty. More serious side effects are severe burns at the point of contact, we'll get to that later, vision and hearing loss, brain damage, respiratory and cardiac arrest, and death. And those are just the physical. I'm sure you can imagine the toll multiple shocks for perceived bad behavior could cause on one's mental health, especially those already suffering with intellectual disabilities. Former students and journalists who have experienced the GED firsthand compare the shock to being stung by a swarm of hornets, very painful, terrifying, and according to its own proponents, such as Rotenberg's own current executive director, Glenda Crooks, the shock is quick but painful enough to jar the patient out of the harmful episode. And what JRC deems as a harmful episode differs from many other experts, and believe me, we'll get to that. But in order to get a clear picture of JRC and its founder, Matthew Israel, Let's go way on back to 1950, when, according to Boston Magazine, Matthew Israel entered Harvard and hadn't exactly figured out who he wanted to be when he grew up. He picked up a book entitled Walden II, written by behavioral psychologist and professor at Harvard, B.F. Skinner. And there it was, 
Skinner's theory of operant conditioning. This theory would become the foundation of Israel's beliefs. Skinner's book Walden II was about a utopian society where behaviors could be modified for the benefit of all of this society. It was based on that theory of operant conditioning. If an action is rewarded, it increases the likelihood that the person will perform the action again. If an action is punished, it increases the likelihood that the action will not be repeated. According to Simply Psychology, Skinner's operant conditioning theory had three main tenets, positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, and punishment. In positive reinforcement, a response or behavior is strengthened by rewards, leading to the repetition of the desired behavior. Oddly enough, this theory is how Skinner had taught pigeons to play table tennis, by rewarding the behaviors that led to their game. Negative reinforcement is defined as a termination of an unpleasant state following a response. It is the removal of an adverse stimulus which is rewarding to the subject. According to Skinner's theory, negative reinforcement strengthens behavior because it stops or removes an unpleasant experience. In fact, Skinner developed an experiment to show how negative and positive reinforcement worked. He designed a box known today as a Skinner box or operant conditioning chamber. So it's an enclosed box, right? An animal was placed in the box. They could be rewarded or punished for engaging in certain behaviors, such as lever pressing for rats or key pecking for pigeons. One way Skinner showed negative reinforcement was by placing a rat in his Skinner box and then subjecting it to an electrical current that covered the floor of the box, which obviously caused the animal discomfort. As the rat moved frantically about the box, it would accidentally knock the lever. Once the lever was tripped, the electric current would be immediately switched off. The rats quickly learned to go straight to the lever after a few times of being put in the box. The consequences of escaping the electric current ensured that they would repeat the action again and again. I mean, pigeons, rats, people, what's the difference? Punishment, as Skinner saw it, was the opposite of reinforcement. It was designed specifically to weaken or eliminate a response rather than increase it. It is an aversive event that decreases the behavior that it follows. Like reinforcement, punishment can work either by directly applying an unpleasant stimulus, like a shock, after a response, or by removing a potentially rewarding stimulus. For instance, deducting someone's pocket money to punish undesirable behavior. This is all starting to sound eerily familiar. Anywho, Israel was obsessed with Walden II and Skinner's theory. He wanted his own utopian community based on its ideals. So he studied. For the next 10 years, he studied under Skinner, as an undergrad, then as a grad student, and finally as a postdoctorate fellow, after having received his PhD in psychology from Harvard in 1960. In 1966, Matthew Israel founded the Association for Social Design, whose objective was to, quote, establish a network of associated experimental communities in cities throughout the world. Just a year later, he went to Arlington and made his dreams of a utopia a reality. He started a commune he called Walden Three. I mean, I can think of a few cult, um, Commune leaders like David Koresh, Charles Manson, Jim Jones, they all wanted a utopian society too. Sorry, got distracted there for a minute. All this according again to Boston Magazine. Back to wannabe cult, I mean commune leader, Matthew Israel. While at Walden 3, Israel's next door neighbor had a three-year-old little girl named Andrea. Little Andrea had some so-called behavior issues. She screamed, cried, whacked people with a broom, and always tried to barge into Israel's room. She's three. Toddlers can be savage. Israel thought he could correct her behavior, so he propositioned her mother asking if he could try some behavioral techniques on her. After all, he was a doctor. Mom agreed, and it all started out innocently enough, you know, leaning more on the positive reinforcement side of things. Israel rewarded Andrea when she behaved what he considered well, taking her on walks and giving her treats. 
Then one fine day, as little Andrea sat in timeout, she screamed. And that was a big no-no in Israel's book, so he flicked her on the cheek. When she calmed down, he left the room. Moments later, she started crying again, so he walked in and flicked her again. She stopped crying. Days and weeks later, Israel could simply look at her and shake his head when she misbehaved, and she would abruptly stop the behavior. His techniques worked, at least according to Israel, as he spoke to Mother Jones, stating she became a charming individual. But despite his supposed success with Andrea, things began to crumble around him. First the commune in Arlington, then a second he had started, and eventually the Association for Social Design. Hilke Kuhlmann, assistant professor at the University of Freiburg, Germany, wrote a book titled Living Walden II, in which she wrote extensively on B.F. Skinner's behaviorist utopia and the experimental communities. In her book, Kuhlmann blamed Israel for the collapse, suggesting he, as a commune's patriarch, wanted his inhabitants to live lives based on altering one another's behavior. The others in the communes and the association thought this wasn't really living, so they were out. Israel disagreed, of course, and said the communities fell apart because the people living in them didn't get along. Regardless of the reason, it was collapsing around him. But Israel wasn't going out that easily. In a last-ditch effort to save the commune, he opened a school. That way, his commune's inhabitants would have jobs. With a stable economy, perhaps this time he'd see success in building his utopia. B.F. Skinner had success with rats and pigeons, but Israel, he had success with Andrea. However, Israel didn't want his school to serve unruly toddlers. No, no, he wanted to serve autistic children. Thus, in 1971, in Providence, Rhode Island, Behavior Research Institute was born. Initially, there were only two students, both teenagers, one autistic and one schizophrenic. Israel soon expanded, opening a school nearby in Cranston. A few years later, another home in Seekonk. According to the Boston Phoenix, in 1975, the Massachusetts State Department of Education approved BRI as a special needs program, even though they had knowledge of Israel's controversial behavior modification methods. At first, licensing BRI's residential homes through the Office for Children as foster care facilities. In 1977, Israel founded a sister branch of BRI in California, followed by residential homes in Attleboro and Rehoboth. With schools and residential homes opening left and right, Israel soon abandoned Walden III and shifted his focus to his schools and controversy with the techniques used at the schools began almost immediately. Positive reinforcement was used at BRI, food, toys, and compliments when pupils were well-behaved. But that wasn't what was controversial. What professionals began objecting to was the use of physical aversives. Teachers at BRI pinched students, spanked them with spatulas, stuck ammonia pellets beneath their nostrils, put them in white noise helmets when they displayed self-injurious or disruptive behavior, or so that's what they blamed. Punishment, as Israel saw it both then and now, was the best way to curb undesirable behavior. Matthew Israel swore off antipsychotic medication and instead relied heavily on aversive therapy. All this according to Boston Magazine. In 1978, the Office for Children decided that the residential homes in Massachusetts should be licensed as group homes, despite the fact that BRI lacked the proper building certificates, according to the Boston Phoenix, and I quote, The state figured the homes were safe enough for autistics and retarded individuals. That shatters my heart. As if because someone is autistic or has intellectual disabilities, they were okay with subpar living conditions. I mean, it's good enough for them, right? Wrong answer. These beautiful souls deserve so much more. They deserve to be cared for, heard, understood, and loved. At this time, there weren't many options for people with autism. 
We didn't understand it then, and we really don't fully now. Although we have come a long way, we obviously still have a long way to go. But because there weren't options and Israel had an open-door policy refusing no one, no questions asked. The state didn't ask too many questions either, and students were stuck on a train and hand-delivered by the state to Matthew Israel. BRI would quickly go to hell in a handbasket, with deaths and numerous allegations of abuse. According to the Boston Phoenix, allegations of abuse were made by parents of a student named Michael at BRI, Massachusetts. To keep him from running away, Michael had been restrained, handcuffed to his chair, his chair then handcuffed to a fire escape ladder. He was admitted to the hospital in June of 1978 for acute cellulitis, blood poisoning, and his right arm. His mother spoke to the outlet, stating, Michael looked like Auschwitz. He lost weight, had a black eye, eight-inch black and blue marks on both inner thighs, and lacerations on other parts of his body. Michael's mother reported that she was told by BRI that the most severe adversive her son would receive would be a two-minute cold shower. She had been duped. I never signed for a damn thing, she said. Michael spent 10 days in the hospital and began to have seizures. In a letter to the governor of Rhode Island, she wrote, I feel Dr. Matthew Israel is being licensed to freely practice child abuse and assault and battery in the name of therapy. Y'all keep in mind, all this happened to Michael, and he was only at BRI for two whole months. According again to Boston Magazine, in 1979, Two reports were issued by the state of New York from agencies that oversaw the Behavior Research Institute since 15 New Yorkers at that time attended the school. Accounts of bright red buttocks and scrapes across the cheek. A student cried saying, take me home, I want to go home. And then there was the weird repeated chants from teachers. Good working without stopping. Good working without stopping. According to an article published in the Boston Phoenix in 1985, one student's program had the following behavior consequences. For biting self, 15 minutes in a helmet with no vision and white noise. For hand play or getting out of his seat, a spank on the buttocks. For making noises, the child would receive a pinch on the buttocks. Biting or attempting to bite others, a cold shower and five pinches on the feet. Placing his hands up by his face was also punished with a muscle squeeze on the shoulder. And for rocking, the student would be sprayed in the face with water. And Israel set these students up for failure. He developed another technique called behavioral rehearsal lessons. Because he thought, in order for his treatment to work, whatever behavior he was trying to eliminate had to occur enough for the student to get rewarded or punished. So he quite literally set them up, instructing staff to encourage the beginning of bad behaviors so they could catch the student and punish them. For example, Kathy. Kathy would frequently steal food and drinks. This was a behavior they wanted to eliminate. Instead of getting to the issue of why she felt she had to steal, they just wanted the behavior to stop. The New York team investigating BRI found these instructions taped to her desk. Quote, Kathy is to receive one stealing opportunity per hour. A stealing opportunity? Oh yeah, a stealing opportunity. Staff would prompt her to steal a juice, and if she made an attempt, she was to be spanked. If Kathy succeeded in acquiring the juice, she was to be punished with 15 minutes in the helmet unable to see, and white noise playing loudly in her ears. The team investigating BRI called this entrapment, and honestly, I couldn't agree more. It was all enough for the author of the report to write. The school's, quote, rigidly implemented program was the singular most depressing experience that team members have had. But it was about to get much, much worse. While all that was going down in New York, BRI's sister institutes in California faced controversy of their own, and they had since they opened. 
According to the LA Times, one institute was first located in a ranch-style home in a quiet neighborhood. Neighbors had reported children attempting to escape only to be drugged back inside the house by staff. Screams that the neighbors reported sounded like someone being stabbed to death. In 1979, a staff member quit and asked the district attorney to file child abuse charges against the institute. The former staff member told officials of one instance when a child was pinched repeatedly on the soles of his feet for 45 minutes. And what self-injurious or aggressive behavior had prompted such a response? He had soiled his pants. According to the former staff, the child's feet were left blistered and bruised for days. Around the same time, multiple state agencies launched investigations into the California BRI centers because numerous former staff members, social workers, and others had come forward with numerous allegations of abuse. They believed the Institute's form of therapy was nothing more than child abuse. And there were so many accounts of abuse. In 1978, a former BRI employee, Kathy Corwin, spoke out. According to court records obtained by the Boston Phoenix, Kathy claimed she saw Israel punish a 12-year-old student, Christopher Hirsch, for defecating in the shower and on a rug. Staff punished him by pinching the bottoms of the boy's feet with their fingernails repeatedly as he cried and screamed in pain. When another worker, Nancy Thibsolt, came in for her shift the following morning, she was sickened after seeing the bottom of Christopher's feet, testifying that there were open blisters and a reddish substance oozing from them. But even this wasn't enough for Israel. BRI staff continued to pinch the bottoms of Christopher's feet. Kathy Corwin returned to work after two days off, and she was horrified at Christopher's condition, stating, The insteps of both of Christopher's feet had a considerable amount of blisters and a considerable amount of open, bloody patches where the skin had been entirely removed. Israel, of course, had a different story detailed in a 30-page rebuttal he titled The Corwin Allegations. In this diatribe, he explained the behavioral research lessons he had designed for Christopher. This lesson was, according to Israel, designed to teach him where and where not to defecate. Israel explained further writing, It took about 30 minutes to design this procedure. It was tried about eight times with variations in the wording each time and with variations in the places Chris was brought to. Since the procedure had three parts and since the pinch was given in each part, Each lesson involved three pinches. Since it required about eight trials before I was satisfied with what the final procedure should be, Chris received about 24 pinches during this half-hour period. He went on to say that he monitored Christopher's feet and, quote, As I recall, no skin was broken, and only normal pinch marks that pinches make on the skin were produced, with the exception of a very small blood blister. But I'm calling bullshit because once Christopher's father caught wind of the alleged abuse, he took his son to the doctor. The doctor would testify that the 12-year-old boy was petrified when they tried to examine his feet. It took three adults to hold him down just so they could take a look. A family friend testified saying there was no part of this skinny boy's body that didn't have a bruise. Christopher's father recalled that the insteps of his son's feet were, quote, covered with strange wounds which can only be described as holes. It looked as if the skin or flesh had been removed and that it was healing and growing back to the level of the skin. The holes were about the circumference of a cigarette burn. And Christopher wasn't the only child it was alleged BRI had abused. There were so many reports. Let's just run through a few. A student named Richard was restrained in a chair, his hands and feet both bound to the chair with a large box covering his head and torso. He was left in that position, alone in a kitchen, for at least an hour. Richard was also restrained and placed in the backyard, again, all alone. These so-called professionals placed his plate of food on the ground in that backyard and forced him to eat with no utensils and his hands restrained at his sides like an animal. Willie, who was deaf, was punished by water squirts to the face for not complying with verbal commands. 
a deaf child was punished for not complying to verbal commands. On a single day in February of 1980, Willie received 77 spanks for hitting himself, 33 more for crying, and 64 spanks for other behaviors. He was also sprayed in the face with water a hundred times. Willie was spanked 174 times in a single day. One has to wonder how many of those were for verbal commands he as a deaf child was unable to comply with. A student named Eric was deprived of meals up to three times a week. And then there was Carl. Whenever Carl would misbehave, he would be placed in isolation. No one was allowed to speak to him for 24 hours. He was restrained behind boxes in the classroom until it was time to go to bed at 11 p.m. But there would be no bed for Carl to sleep in. Instead, he would be tied to a piece of furniture in the living room in a kneeling position to sleep, deprived of a bed, pillow, or blanket. It was also revealed that employees were instructed to administer pinches and spanks to the buttocks, inner arm, inner thigh, and or soles of the feet, and to dress residents in long sleeve shirts and long pants to prevent their families and other visitors from seeing the bruises and abrasions resulting from the abuse. I mean, aversive therapy. Medical appointments were canceled if a resident was too bruised. Just so we're straight, access to medical care was denied or delayed to cover bruising and injury due to Matthew Israel's behavioral therapy. This sister institute was ran by a woman named Judith Weber. She had visited Israel's institute in Rhode Island and was apparently inspired. She began implementing his behavioral plan on her own autistic son and then opened the home. California state officials had banned Matthew Israel from so much as stepping foot in Weber's homes in California. But that wouldn't stop Israel from making the calls at the BRI Center, even if he was all the way in Rhode Island. Matthew Israel would later fall in love and marry BRI California's Judith Weber. In fact, they remain married to this day. The pair would start a whole new school they called Tobin World out there in Cali, which is still in operation. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. According to a report by the North Los Angeles County Region Center, or NLACRC, which at the time was a placement agency that distributed state money for the disabled. Oh yeah, have I failed to mention the fact that taxpayer dollars were and are still funding these operations? Because they are. More on that a little later. Anyhow, according to that report by NLACRC, Matthew Israel was still calling the shots all the way from Rhode Island. The report stated that BRI California employed sham administrators for appearance sake only. When any clinical or staffing judgment had to be made, Israel had to be called and consulted. It was he himself making all the decisions. The report also stated that, and I quote, BRI conducted a propaganda show for visitors and that the real BRI was never seen by any outsider alleging that two weeks prior to official state or parent visits, aversives causing bruises or marks were stopped temporarily. The center informed its staff that it does not want any bruises on the children's bodies at the time of the visits. NLACRC attempted in court to halt funding of the clients of BRI in California, charging that BRI had abused its allegedly therapeutic processes inflicted serious injury to one of its residents, administered non-approved aversives, and applied inadequate controls in its use of aversives. But NLA, CRC, lost the battle in court. And who objected on behalf of BRI? The parents. And that's a common theme you're going to find throughout this story. Three parents of students enrolled at BRI objected, saying their children would land in state hospitals where they claimed they would be subjected to drugs, solitary confinement, and wait for it, electric shocks. Oh, the irony of that argument now. 
The court battle was lost not because there wasn't ample evidence of abuse, but because of a technicality. The judge's ruling centered around the NLACRC's lack of authority to defund the program. And then there was Danny. Israel liked to make videos showing his progress with students, and that extended to his partner and good friend over there in California. The film would show how aggressive and bad the patient was before, hurting themselves, throwing food, and then show the after, you know, smiling kids and hugs and kisses all around. It was his proof that his program worked, only it was all a sham. That report from the NLACRC had also alleged that Danny, whose supposed turnaround was documented in one of Israel's films, was prompted to act out to show his wild before behavior. According to that report obtained by the Boston Phoenix, he was prompted to grab the secretary's hair so it could be filmed, so he appeared extra dangerous. His so-called behavior was not only prompted but rehearsed before being filmed. Staff had actually thrown food around the room and then filmed to make it appear that Danny had done it. On the morning of July 17, 1981, 14-year-old Danny Oswald was found dead at BRI, California. Dead while restrained face down on his stomach in his bed. Danny died somewhere between 9 and 10 a.m. still in those restraints. But BRI would face no consequences for the death because the county coroner ruled his death was from natural causes. Those causes? Quote, mental retardation and cerebral malformation. But one has to wonder if being restrained face down for a long period of time could have possibly contributed to his death. After all, this was the early 80s, and we've come so far with medical advancements and learned so much more about the human body. In 1982, after Danny's death and after the California Department of Social Services compiled a report accusing BRI of over a hundred licensing violations, the state banned BRI California from using physical aversives. And while the shit was hitting the fan in California, things were no better for Israel and BRI in Massachusetts. In 1985, licensing investigator with the Office for Children, Michael Avery, spent 250 hours at BRI Massachusetts over a period of months to look into the aversives BRI was using. Avery chose to experience some of the aversives firsthand, later writing in his report that the finger pinches on the soles of his feet only stung for two or three seconds, but throbbed later. Three muscle squeezes to his left shoulder left him with a dull ache for three days. An ammonia near his nose kicked his head back for a brief time, and it took nearly 10 minutes for him to get his breathing under control. He also tried out the AVS station, or automatic vapor station, where he stood barefoot on a rigid rubber mat, his ankles and wrists cuffed. Now, usually a bucket of water would be dumped over the head, but Avery skipped that part. But he was hit with a spray of ammonia, two or three inches from his nose. After the ammonia was applied, he put on the remote vapor spray helmet. There was no visibility. White noise filled his ears. And an air and water combo sprayed him in the face. He was afraid and thought he was going to pass out. He was only in the station for half an hour, but the experience was so disorienting he felt it could have been five minutes or two hours. When it was all over, it took a minute or two for him to regain his composure to be able to speak in coherent sentences. Avery realized Israel had changed the aversives being used without the Office for Children's approval. The approved list was ignoring the behavior, saying no, token fines, water spray, vapor spray, taste aversive, think jalapeno peppers and lemon juice on the tongue, physical exercise, timeout helmet, ammonia, hand squeeze, spank, muscle squeeze, pinch, brief cool shower, timeout helmet with safety tube, and optional vapor spray. The approved list was horrific enough but apparently not good enough for Matthew Israel. 
there was a new unapproved list of aversives being used at BRI. The new list read as follows. Ignore, say no, token fines, water squirt to face or back of neck, vapor spray 1, 2, and 3, lasting 3 seconds, 15 seconds, and 2 minutes respectively, air spray, white noise visual screen, one administered while sitting and the other while standing, taste aversive, ammonia, contingent physical exercises, remote vapor spray, something called the social punisher in which students who didn't like each other were tied together, hand squeeze, wrist squeeze, rolling pinch, and finger pinch, both of which were administered to the buttocks, inner arms and thighs, bottoms of feet, palms, and stomach. Water spray three in which buckets of cold water were dumped over the student's head, a brief cold shower, and then that automatic vapor station Avery had experienced. Students could be punished for their misbehavior with any one of these or a combination of several. All this according again to reports obtained by the Boston Phoenix. I mean, are these students or prisoners of war? Because at this point, it's hard to tell. Avery expressed his concern about what was happening at BRI, but at the same time, the Massachusetts Department of Education issued BRI a clean bill of health. If only they had listened to Avery. On July 24, 1985, 22-year-old autistic student Vincent Militique died during the administration of a so-called aversive therapy. He was being, quote, consequated for making inappropriate sounds. I guess only using physical aversives to stop self-injurious or dangerous behavior had completely gone out the freaking window. While he was being consequated for making noise, according to BRI, he started thrashing around. One staff member at BRI pushed his head between another staff member's legs and handcuffed his hands behind his back. But once they had him under control, they took things a step further and shoved his head in a helmet. You know, the one that completely blocked him from seeing anything but darkness, while white noise rang in his ears. What Israel and BRI referred to as white noise visual screen. They then put him down on the floor in the helmet with his hands still cuffed behind his back. Eventually, Vincent went limp and stopped moving. He was transported to a Rhode Island hospital where he was pronounced dead. Let's do something real quick. If you're in a location where it's safe to do so, I want you to put your hands behind your back. Now close your eyes tightly. I mean, unless you're driving, then do none of these things. Hands behind your back, eyes closed. I'm about to play a little bit of white noise for you. If you can, turn the volume up and stay in that position. If you are sensitive at all to white noise for any reason, please skip ahead 10 seconds. That is the last sound Vincent Militique heard. His last moments on earth, he was strapped into a helmet, unable to see, white noise ringing in his ears, cuffed and laid out on the floor. How terrifying this must have been for him. And that white noise I just played was only 10 seconds. And maybe it's just me, but I was already incredibly uncomfortable. Can you even begin to imagine what that would be like for someone on the spectrum? The majority of those on the autism spectrum have sensory processing issues, and white noise is a sensory overload. What is uncomfortable or annoying, or even in some cases soothing? Yeah, all you fans of white noise, your girl just doesn't get it. To someone who is neurotypical can be absolute torture for those on the spectrum or neurodiverse. The reason white noise is such a sensory overload, according to live science, is because it includes all audible frequencies of sound at once. That's actually how it got its name. It was named after white light, which is a mix of all visible wavelengths of light. 
all wavelengths of light, all audible frequencies of sound. You see where we're going with this. And I just want to point out that white noise has been used as an enhanced interrogation tactic by multiple U.S. agencies, including the CIA. The British used it in the 70s against IRA suspects before an interrogation. Medical Daily actually defines sound torture as a type of psychological warfare used to break the will of prisoners using loud music or white noise. Break the will of prisoners. But Vincent and all the others at BRI weren't prisoners, were they? An investigation into Vincent's death was launched. According to the New York Times, the medical examiner ruled that Vincent Militik died of asphyxiation but went on to say it wasn't known what cut off his oxygen. But Matthew Israel disagrees, of course, posting at the time on the Institute's website, stating, The cause of Vincent's death was ultimately determined to be natural causes related to his condition of tardive dyskinesia and not due to the restraint procedure that had been employed. But the coroner's report and the court findings beg to differ. While BRI ultimately wasn't found responsible for the death of Vincent, Matthew Israel was found negligent. The judge stating Israel was negligent in authorizing the use of this helmet without having an expert in helmet construction design the helmet or subject it to a safety inspection, again according to the New York Times. Vincent's death caught the attention of multiple advocacy groups who made attempts for the state to step in and shut down Israel and BRI. According to the Boston Phoenix, the executive director of the Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts, John Roberts, wrote to the governor at the time, Michael Dukakis, quote, We recognize that parents do agree to the treatment program when children are placed at BRI but many do so out of desperation that there is no other placement available. However, even parents are prohibited from abusing their children. According to Boston Magazine, Matthew Israel and former Governor Dukakis went to Brookline High School together and ran cross-country, becoming great friends. Great friends. I'm just going to leave that right here. Moving on. According to the Boston Phoenix, on September 16, 1985, Michael Avery got a call from a former BRI worker who told him about a change in the contingent food program for some students at BRI, in which many meals were either served as rewards or withheld as punishments. Supposedly, students who missed the many meals as punishment received the rest of their calories later. He was also informed about BRI's food intake charts, which kept track of every ounce of food a student received. So like a boss, Avery showed up to BRI unannounced the very next day and asked for the food intake charts. He discovered that it was all true. BRI had changed the food plan without telling the Office for Children. Every student now had to earn his or her food through a system of rewards and punishments. And we're not talking the old, be good and you can get an ice cream. No, these students at BRI had to earn basic human sustenance. Avery left BRI with a pile of documents seven inches thick. He and his coworker at OFC went through the papers. What they saw scared them. They looked at each other and said, oh my God. What they found is reflected in these excerpts from the OFC complaint as reported by the Boston Phoenix. On July 16, 1985, student H received 173 spanks to the thighs, 50 spanks to the buttocks, 98 muscle squeezes to the thighs, shoulders, and triceps, 88 finger pinches to the buttocks, 47 finger pinches to the thighs, approximately 527 finger pinches to the feet, and 78 finger pinches to the hand between 6 o'clock a.m. and 9.30 p.m. for aggressive acts and banging his head. On July 27, 1985, student G received 170 spanks to various areas of the body. 139 finger pinches to an unknown area of the body, 
31 muscle squeezes to the triceps, and 139 water squirts to the face between approximately 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. for aggressive acts and destruction of property. During April of 1985, the OFC licensor reviewed Student G's behavior charts and learned that from March 9, 1985 to March 20, 1985, Student G was placed in the AVS on a continuous nonstop basis, except for a time out of the AVS for bathroom and water opportunities and sleep time. Student G was required to wear a white noise visual screen with the noise turned off while sleeping. That's 11 days Student G was placed in the AVS nonstop. Of the 84 meals recorded on Student L's food intake form for the month of April 1985, Student L did not receive approximately 30 meals and did not receive portions of five other meals. Of the 73 meals recorded on Student P's food intake form for April 1st to April 25th, 1985, Student P did not receive approximately 46 meals and did not receive portions of another 17 meals. On April 24, 1985, BRI's staff physician examined P and determined that Student P had generalized edema in the lower extremities and significant weight loss and directed that Student P be kept out of the AVS. It is OFC's information and belief that Student P had a weight loss of 20 pounds from February 4, 1985 to April 28. It is OFC's information and belief that Student P was cuffed to a restraint board for medical conditions and removed from the contingent food program on April 27, 1985. On July 5, 1985, the BRI staff physician diagnosed Student P as suffering from anemia. Student records indicated that behavior rehearsal lessons were used for students' behavior such as stealing, inappropriate urination and defecation, and body tensing. Parental permission forms state that behavior rehearsal lessons will be implemented only for serious problems such as pulling out hair, biting others or self, and opening a car door while driving. Needless to say, the Massachusetts Office for Children attempted to shut BRI down through an emergency measure, charging that BRI was endangering students through food deprivation, excessive punishment, and disregard for regulatory licenses. But in a probate court in Bristol County, Judge Ernest Rotenberg ruled in BRI's favor and BRI was free to continue its operations. The Boston Phoenix's Rick Kahn spoke to Matthew Israel in 1985. It's detailed in an article entitled Dr. Hurt. Kahn wrote, Matthew Israel is smiling. There is a newspaper photograph in front of him, and he is smiling into the camera. He is finding it hard to keep it up. A woman walks in his office. Israel says to her, Think of things to make me smile. She says, money. Israel says, how about cutting Mike Avery into little pieces? How about group homes for BRI? How about torturing Michael Avery? Hmm, torture. One of the things some would say Israel is good at. Israel went on to discuss Avery and everyone else who had ever came against him. He used personal attacks against them. He then went on to talk about Andrea and Walden III and all the controversy surrounding him. It's clear that he had no plans of stopping, telling Khan that if Massachusetts shut him down, he just opened group homes in Rhode Island. It's all pretty much what you'd expect Israel to say. But something in that article stopped me dead in my tracks and sent a chill all the way up my spine. It's a quote from Matthew Israel, and it reads, I've never used electric shock, he said in a calm, soft voice. I wouldn't rule it out, particularly if we were deprived of other procedures. It's more effective, and you wouldn't bruise or cut the skin. Suddenly, everything I researched, every story I'd been told, every unbelievable account of the things done at what is now known as the Judge Rotenberg Center formerly, of course, BRI, 
made sense. I knew I had to cover this case. I know this is a little different than what you're used to. And I know we're going super deep in the history here. But y'all, autistic and intellectually disabled students are still being abused and the name of therapy at the hands of Matthew Israel. Still, it's 2021 and students are still being subjected to food deprivation, helmets, chains, restraints, and yes, electrical shock. In coming episodes, you'll learn about a student shocked thousands of times in a single day. We'll discuss the FDA ban, the lawsuits, more alleged abuse. You'll learn all about Abigail, Linda, Andre, and my beautiful friend, Jen. I know oftentimes you and I feel helpless when it comes to the victims of crime. But in this case, there is something we can do. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for a plan of action and how you can help. I'll be posting more information as well as actions you can take to end this nightmare for the students currently receiving treatment at JRC on my Facebook at least of these and my Instagram at least underscore of these. Today, I'm going to end things a little bit differently and take us out with an original song by my friend Jennifer Masumba. Jen is an award-winning filmmaker, musician, author, member of Mensa, and I'm probably forgetting like 10 other things. She is one of the most incredible, talented, and hilarious human beings I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. Being in her presence is like when it's really cold outside, but the sun is shining bright and it warms your face. Jen is the sunshine, only she doesn't warm your face, but your very soul. She's a bright spot in a dull world. Jennifer Masumba is autistic and was a captive, excuse me, I meant resident at JRC from 2002 to 2009. Her so-called behavior plan at JRC included the use of the GED-4. You'll be hearing so much more about her story, her escape, and triumph over what she endured at JRC very soon. But for now, I leave you with 20,000 Ways by the incredibly talented Jennifer Masumba. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time... Be good to each other. I've learned 20,000 ways how not to have a good life. I've learned 20,000 ways how not to make a friend I've tried 20,000 times to be like the crowd But I realize I'm okay with who I am now If at first you don't succeed Try again is what they say I know it hurts to lose and to get lost along the way Though I can tell you this, if you give up, you'll never win So keep on moving, keep on going Keep on going If at first
Find a way.